Josh, my friend, yeah. if you are a listener of ours and you live in Chicago, Toronto, Vancouver, Austin, Brooklyn, Minneapolis, Kansas, or right here in Atlanta, you can come see us on tour starting in August and finishing up in November. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, man. It's our 2017 North America Monsters of Podcasting Tour. That's, I like the sounds of that. Eddie Van Halen is opening. Yeah, he is. But not really. No. Not really. But you can find out all the information and all the deets at SYSKlive.com, our Squarespace live touring home on the web, and we hope to see everyone out there. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry Rollins. Stuff you should know. The podcast. That's right. And, buddy, I am happy to be doing another Grabster article. Getting him back in the fold has been a true boon for this organization. So much so, Chuck. I think that we should see if Noel can whip us up a little grabster theme music to, oh, wow. to play when we do a grabster article what do you think yeah okay well we'll see grabster's in the metal maybe it can be metal themed yeah but noel's into the moog so he'll yeah just... <laughs> maybe it'll be a weird mashup of that yeah i'm pretty excited about this and this is one uh for those of you who don't know we're talking about ed grabanowski one of our favorite writers here mm-hmm. who uh hadn't been doing a lot of writing for us and we specifically petitioned to get ed writing again and not even just that. Can we send Ed ideas specifically for this show that we think are great? Yeah. Because we know he will do right by them. And this is one of those because someone wrote in, wish I had the email, but someone wrote in suggesting Camp X and I'd never heard of it. Yeah. Did, did a little research and I was like, oh man, this is a Grabster article if I've ever heard one. Uh, I was going to ask you where you, where you heard of this because I hadn't heard of it either. Now, it, was a, it was listener mail or Facebook. It's pretty awesome. Whoever sent that, that suggestion in, hats off to you. Thanks for it. Yes. So Camp X, for those of you who haven't heard of it, um, hopefully we're not the only ones, right? Only ones who haven't heard of it? Right. It's pretty little known, I think, among general circles. I think enthusiasts and war uh, historians probably know more about it. Maybe reenactors. Yeah, sure. Why not? Um well, aside from those people, if you haven't heard of Camp X, don't feel bad because it was meant to be that way. It was a secret camp. It was basically a camp to tree to train good guy terrorists in World War II. Good guy terrorists. Mm-hmm. Saboteurs. Saboteur. I like that word. Propagandists. <laughs> uh, Morse code operators. Assassins. Basically, the guys who went over as secret agents and just messed up stuff in Europe and I believe uh, Africa as well, North Africa, uh, uh, for the Allies during World War II. Yeah, and if there's one thing I learned through this article is, uh, even though I'm a liberal peacenik, if I would have been alive during that generation and had to go to war, I would totally have wanted to have been a saboteur. Oh, yeah. Like all the movie, like The Great Escape and Victory and all these great World War II movies I watched growing up. I, I was never about like the frontline battles. And you know, I mean, some of those movies are OK. But, man, you show me a movie about dudes sneaking around in the dead of night to blow up a bridge. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm all over that. Have you seen Foxfire, the Clint Eastwood movie where he has to go <laughs> steal a plane? Was it Firefox or Foxfire? Foxfire? Was it Firefox? I think we're, I, I, I think it was Foxfire, and we're just being misled by the the web browser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do too. Either now, one. Yeah, I saw that. It was a special plane, wasn't it? Yeah, and he had to go steal it. Yeah, and just bridge over the River Kwai. Like I watched all Dirty Dozen, all those movies that were about small groups of soldiers infiltrating quietly and uh, yeah, that's good stuff. wreaking havoc from the inside. Man, I love that. Big Red One. Oh, yeah, that was my first R-rated movie. The Guns of Navarone? Yes. Remember poor Mark Hamill's testicles get blown off in Big Red One by a grenade. <laughs> uh, well, I thought you were going to say Mark Hamill's poor testicles. Either he, way. They, they they got blown off, and Lee Marvin was like, you don't need these anymore, and just, like, tosses them away. Yeah, I remember, like I said, it was my first R-rated movie. I remember being in the movie theater at Toco Hills oh, yeah. here in Atlanta and seeing those testicles being tossed down to him, and I was horrified. So, anyway. Yeah, uh, that got weird. Can't, can't, it usually does. Uh, Camp X was a place where those people in those movies that you love may have been trained. It was... Quite literally a secret agent training camp in World War II. And like the kind where, you know, now you look back and you're like, yeah, that sounds like something from a James Bond novel or something like that. It actually is kind of the thing that inspired later fiction like James Bond. Sure. Like this is where it really happened. And it was in this little place in the middle of nowhere along Lake Ontario uh, in Ontario, Canada, about 30 miles over the lake from the United States. Should we get back in the Wayback Machine? Le oh, we're going to go to Camp X? Maybe. Well, keep your head down because they use live fire. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right, here we are. It's 1941. Pew, pew, pew. And the, uh, the war is raging, but the United States is not yet involved officially because... Um, well, because we were the United States, we were kind of way over where we where we sit and um, positioned on the planet Earth and all the fighting was going on over there. So we were sort of isolated from that. And although President Roosevelt was like, man, uh, we technically should be going over there and helping out Britain battle the Nazis because they're not good guys and we should probably join up. But uh, there is pressure for us to remain over here and not get involved just yet. Yeah, well, there was a huge isolationist movement that joined with the peace movement that was basically like, no, we remember World War One and how horrible that was. We need to stay out of this. Let that be a European war. That's right. Did you know um, there were actually elements from friendly countries? They're like Roald Dahl, the guy who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. And Ian Flaming, the guy who went on to write um, the James Bond novels, they were working as agents for the British government here in the U.S. working to kind of propagandize against that isolationist movement to get the U.S. to enter the war and help Britain out. Yeah. And in fact, you mentioned Bond earlier. We might as well go ahead and say that there were rumors that Ian Fleming did actually go to Camp X to train, even though uh, those were, I think, completely unsubstantiated. Is that right? He probably visited and said hi because he was friends with one of the people in charge there. But he um, and he definitely was in America at the time it was operating. Um, so he, he probably went by there, but he didn't train there as far as anyone knows. All right. 
So World War II is going on, even though they didn't call it that at the time, and um, <laughs> which is something they got right in the new Wonder One, uh, Woman movie, by the way. Man, that was one of the best superhero movies I've seen in a long time. It was great. Yep. In pretty much every way. Yep. Uh, so World War II is raging. Roosevelt wants to get involved but can't really officially do it. But he does know that, hey, even though we're not officially involved, we probably need to kind of get unofficially involved and at least start gathering intelligence and start getting information going and kind of just do our uh, pre-war due diligence, I guess you could say. Yeah. Like, at the very least, there are probably a lot of agents, not just from friendly nations, working in the United States. So we should at least have an intelligence service that can battle those guys, if not assist with the the war. Right. But that's a tough thing to get going uh, from scratch, as Ed points out. But uh, there was a country, uh, Great Britain, who was very experienced in this field Mm -hmm. from all their years. Traveling the world is one way you could say it. Uh, <laughs> about the friendliest way you can say it. Yeah. Um, and they were really, really experienced with this and they had great intelligence operations and they said, you know what? We'll come in and we'll, we'll, we'll help you out. We'll get you going. Yeah, they did. And the U.S. said, okay, but don't tell anybody because we're neutral. Right. And they went, sure. Sure. So to facilitate this, I think at the time they, they weren't necessarily sure where this was going, but they wanted to form a partnership. So the British Security Coordination, which was a an office of the Special Operations Executive, which is itself a branch of MI6, right? Um, they set up an office, a secret office, at Rockefeller Center in New York. How awesome is that? It is. Even on the the plaque on the on the wall said that it was British passport control, completely undercover British office that was meant to act as the liaison between the British secret operations and America's super secret operations that was so super secret it shouldn't have even existed. And that office would later become Lorne Michaels office. <laughs> right. At least do in you, my do, mind. <laughs> do your Lorne Michaels impression. Uh no. That's pretty good. <laughs> so you've got thirty rock, you've got an outpost set up. Uh they were kind of getting things going. Um and it was headed up at that time, did you say William Stevenson? No, not yet. He was a Canadian who actually served uh, Britain as a fighter pilot in World War One, and he was the head of the BSC at the time. And he is roundly considered to have been the inspiration for James Bond. That oh, was guy he was, the guy? He was the real deal. He drank martinis at lunch. Yeah, and killed people with his bare hands, and like he was, he was the real deal. So he was the one who who set up originally Camp X, and I think he had his fingers in a lot of other pots. And Ian Fleming actually did work directly beneath him, uh, as did Roald Dahl. Oh, well, there you have it. I, aren't you just fascinated by the fact that the guy who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a a secret agent working in America yeah. in the 40s? It's great. And you know what? He wrote those children's books, but he also had a an entire uh, bookshelf full of kind of body, raunchy uh, adult books that he had written. <laughs> right. It was great. Yeah. Everyone just thinks of him as a kid's author, but he was... Much, much more. Well, it's like with uh, Anthony Burgess, who wrote A Clockwork Orange, also wrote children's books, too. Yeah, well, that's disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Canada at this time, um, well, and it still is, as Ed points out, it's a commonwealth and, or part of the commonwealth. And 
they wanted to support Britain, uh, but they also wanted to go to war as Canada and assert themselves and say, but we're Canada. We're going as Canada. <laughs> so, so the Brits are like, all right, all right. Everybody calm say, down. Fine, whatever. Let's just, let's just chill out here. Right. Uh, how about we set up a secret camp in Canada to facilitate the training of Canadian and American secret agents? How about that? Yeah. And they said, how secret? And they said, so secret that Prime Minister Mackenzie King is not aware. And then they just dropped their tea and said, you've got us. And his monocle popped out. (laughs) So, yeah, the the prime minister didn't even know about this thing until it was well underway because I think they were afraid he would say no, right? Yeah, but do you know how mad I would be as prime minister finding out after the fact? Sure. I'd be like, guys, come on. It's me, Mackenzie. (laughs) You know me? Big Mac. Don't you know me? So uh Stevenson said, let's pull the trigger on this. Uh They got a, a businessman from Vancouver named A.J. Taylor. I love this. To buy 260 acres. They call them 105 hectares. Yeah, in Canada. In Canada. Uh Buy this land near um Oshawa, Ontario for 12 grand under the name the Rural Realty Company, comma, LTD, period. Yeah, which is British for ink. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. It means the same thing. Yeah, that's what I figured. So, um, this, this land, it was one of the reasons it was selected was it was extremely remote. There were towns around it, but you could barely consider them towns. They were so small and, and sparsely populated. Then this place was in the middle of nowhere and near these middle of nowhere towns, but it also had varied terrain. Like there's a swamp. Yeah. The part that butted up against Lake Ontario was cliff like and it actually kind of resembled some of the cliffs of France. That would later be scaled during D-Day. Sure. Um, there was open plains and fields. There were woods. Basically everything you would need to train somebody to do some damage in Europe. Yeah, there was a pretty simple farmhouse. There was some storage facilities. And then they added, of course, barracks, uh, built some classrooms. And uh, eventually we'll, we'll talk about the radio station there. But they built uh, a building to house this uh, radio equipment that would... Be pretty key. Kiss 104 FM. <laughs> the sound of Oshawa. <laughs> right. So they get this place up and going, right? And again, the whole reason it's in Canada is because America is officially neutral and it's not supposed to be training secret agents under the guy, under the um, guidance of the British. That's just not supposed to be happening. And irony of ironies is that Camp X, which is not its official name, um, it had a number of different official names, which really kind of gets across just what a secret installation it was. It didn't have one official name. Um, but Camp X opened on December 6th, 1941. Wow. The next day, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. That's nice. And right after that, the U.S. entered the war. And this guy who runs this website and has written a couple books on Camp X, uh, I think it's uh, the Camp X official site dot com maybe uh-huh. um he points out that had the japanese attacked pearl harbor six months earlier camp x never would have existed because they yeah. would have just built it in the u.s exactly because the u.s entered the war and in fact there were plenty of other secret agent camps that were built in the u.s but they kept camp x going not just to train americans but also to train canadians as well yeah and so the the people um like you said no one uh officially called it camp x that name came from the local 
what few local people were near there. Right. Just because it was so mysterious. They called it Camp X or they called it, quote, the secret military camp. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, the people that were actually there training called it the farm uh, because of kind of, you know, the fields and the orchards everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the official designation was uh, STS 103, Special Training School 103. Right. And then the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had their own name for it, too, which was S25-1-1. Man, this is getting good. The Canadian military called it Project J. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but do, don't you think that kind of like gets across that this is so secret that that no one really knew what to call it? Yeah, it shall not be named. It's like yeah. a, uh, what's his face? Lovecraftian camp. Right. Should we take a break? I think so. All right, we'll be back and we'll talk about uh, what training was like. And I'll give you a hint. Rigorous. <laughs> All right, Chuck. So the training there, if you went there, and uh, there's actually a discrepancy here um, between the Camp X site and what Ed is saying. Uh-oh. What I, what the Camp X official site is saying is that when you go there, you're basically going into what amounts to basic secret agent training. Sure. And you are, you're trained in all these different ways. And then if you don't wash out, which is supposedly a tremendous percentage a very high percentage of the people who went in didn't make it through but if you if you made it through this training which was between three and ten weeks depending on who you ask um you would then go on to britain to different finishing schools depending on what you excelled at during this generalized basic secret agent training right and then once you finished finishing school the um british secret services would um design a secret mission based exclusively for you around your talents and then drop you behind enemy lines and you go do some crazy stuff. It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. So like they would say, chap, you've got a real knack for the bang, bang. (laughs) So they would send them to bridge blowing up school. Exactly. And then you go blow up the bridge over the river Kwai. Man. All right. So regardless Everyone went through some of the same basic things, or maybe everyone at Camp X. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's so secret nobody knows for sure. That's kind of the way it is. Uh, but everyone would learn things like um, kind of some basic, I guess what I call it basic training, but some basic things of Saboteur 101, like how to read a map in a foreign language, how to draw a map to lead someone to where you need to be. Um how to take a guy out with your bare hands, how to fire a gun in the dark, how to put together a gun in the dark yeah. and fire it in the dark using something that I'd never heard of called instinctive gunfighting. Yeah, so that's where rather than saying like, freeze, bad guy, and getting down on one knee and closing one eye and looking <laughs> down the sights and shooting that's your the 70s guy. cop show? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Like the streets of San Francisco or something, right? Yeah. You just, you're running and shooting. You're not even using the sights. You just are, are using basically your hand as your guide. Yeah. Um, and you're shooting people at a distance of at least 20 feet. And like you said, oftentimes in the dark. And this may all 
come as part of the training after you've been dropped off in an abandoned farmhouse and told to find a bag of gun parts and put it together in the dark and come out shooting. What was that deal in the like seventies cop shows where they would hold their wrist <laughs> to steady their gun hand? You wanted to steady your, your shooting hand. I know, but I don't think that was, I mean, you steady it. Like I know how to shoot a pistol. It's, I don't know if it was ever like that officially. Uh, maybe it's to keep the recoil from throwing your aim off. Well, I mean, I think it's for all that, but I don't know if that was ever the proper way is what I'm saying. Oh, I see. It seemed it like it was like a, specifically a TV thing. Yeah, like Aaron Spelling was like, try this. <laughs> hold your hold your wrist. That no, looks your cool. other wrist. Yeah, do that from now on. Carl Malden was like, okay. <laughs> uh, some of the other, I mean, this training there, by all accounts, you sent an article from a guy who was actually there. It sounded like some of the most hardcore training you could go through. Yeah, this guy named um, Andrew Andy Durovich. Durovich. Um, he was a Canadian-Hungarian um, guy. He was actually in his 30s when he went through CampX training. And he uh, wrote a book about his experience. And he, he was a great source of a lot of... Um, this information of, of what it was like to go train there. But he was the guy who was saying that you would, um, you would, there were, there was not only like daytime maneuvers, there were nighttime maneuvers as well. And while you were there, you were basically training the entire time. Like you didn't, if you had, you know, a class on, um, where to kick somebody in the testicles in one building. And then you had <laughs> another building an outbuilding where you went to go learn how to mess with plastic explosives. You didn't walk from one building to the next building. They gave you an assignment to get to the other building without being seen. Right. Uh, by, you know, this guy who was trying to find you. I think like it was, it was that, immersive. Yeah, it was very, very well put Chuck fully immersive. And apparently the whole thing started off. The moment you got there with a welcome reception. Yeah. So they, these guys, uh, this particular group that Andy, he went by Andy Daniels that he was with, uh, like you said, were Hungarian. So they kind of had a little Hungarian spread of food and they made him feel welcome, had Hungarian wine and they all got kind of drunk and they all just thought this was just like a nice thing they were doing. But that was even part of the training because you had to be trained to be able to go undercover and drink with the 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 enemy and still keep your wits right because uh and i read actually a, a, another account by andy durovich that after he went through camp x and was trained on a secret mission he was approached by some of the uh, like a german intelligence officer who was working undercover i think in cairo and they were trying to drink each other under the table to get them one another to reveal information and he said he ended up winning that battle Pistole. some of the uh some of the um, German intelligence officers, comrades, came and got him because he drank him literally under the table. Uh, what are some of the things they would do? They would say, oh, I don't know, um, go to the edge of a cliff and say, all right, you have to jump off of that into the water, uh, swim back to shore and climb back up from a rope. And they get through doing all this and they get to the top and then they say, do it again. <laughs> Right. Like when they're at their most exhausted, they would push these men and they, they were only men uh, being trained. Women did play a part, which we'll get to. But, um, yeah, they they would push them to their breaking point and then keep pushing them because they were doing things so important and so covert. Their 
it was survival training. Yeah, and I think the the impression I have also is that they were basically going on the concept of muscle memory, where if you do something enough times, it becomes second nature to you. So they were drilling them in everything they taught them so that you you just did it automatically in any condition. Yeah, you said they always use live ammo. They also requested uh, a very large see-through bulletproof uh, screen so they could just stand there and like fire bullets at these dudes. I didn't get the point of this other than it was probably cool. Oh no, I think the point is to to desensitize you to having a gun pointed and shot at your face. Oh, okay. So you know what that feels like. Right, but do you need to know what that feels like because if if you're standing there and somebody shoots you in the face, you're probably going to be desensitized forever by that. No. <laughs> you know? No, I think of the point. I think of the point is uh i don't know where that came from was is just to uh yeah just to like i mean have you ever had a gun pointed in your face well sure plenty of times but <laughs> it was never fired i, I think <laughs> um I, I think the point is just to make them steely their nerves like made yeah. of steel no, I got it. And the, the dude who, uh, who wrote the Camp X official site book, he basically said the reason why they were using live fire was like you, you knew that they weren't going to shoot you, but there was a possibility that you could still sure. die by accident and that, you know, it, it lent itself to the seriousness of your training, but it also kind of made you mad. Oh yeah. And, and you were, you were, they were trying to push your buttons and seeing how much you would keep your head. That was kind of along the lines also of getting you super drunk to see if you would talk, how, how, how boastful you were when you were super drunk or something like that. So they were messing with you psychologically as much as training you physically too. Yeah. And it wasn't just training in like how to, how to karate chop a dude or how to sneak up behind someone and just gingerly strangle them to the ground. Although they did all that for sure. Yeah. Um, they also did, uh, fake well, kind of barely fake um, expeditions. They would go out and steal a train. And it's it's not set up. Like, they would steal a train in Canada. Right. uh, And in one case, they stole the train, got on board. Everyone was like, do you know how to drive this thing? And everyone said, no. They said, well, let's get it going anyway. They got it going. (laughs) We're going down the track, realized they didn't know how to switch it, saw an oncoming train, and all bailed off the train. Uh, Luckily, they did not collide. They just kind of slowly came to a, a stop and kind of bumped one another, which is Yeah, that was just funny. pure providence. <laughs> but, I mean, um, it, it really could have gone another way, you know? Yeah, but they would do like, uh, they wouldn't blow up a bridge, but they would set it up with fake explosives as if they were going to blow it up. Right. Uh, and occasionally doing all this stuff, they would run afoul of the law and get arrested. And then, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, exactly what you would think, like Mission Impossible or something pretty soon. Someone comes along behind you that says to the officer, they're part of the war effort. You don't need to ask any questions. They're coming with me. Just forget, right. forget everything that happened tonight. Yeah. You want your family to survive? Well, then you didn't see any of this. <laughs> well, they even, that was where they used their special insider code. Is that correct? Well, there was one guy who was arrested. Um, he was caught by police. I'm not quite sure what he was doing. Um, but he had basically undertaken a, a self-appointed mission and had been caught by the real cops. And he said, just get in touch with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and tell them I said S25-1-1. And remember, that was the, the Mounties code for that camp, for yeah. Camp X. 
And apparently within a very short time, a, a Mountie official showed up, whisked the guy off and said, this didn't happen to the to the local police. Yeah. And this well, we also got to keep in mind, this was a local cop in Ontario in the 1940s. <laughs> right. So he was probably like, oh, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted no trouble. Right. So there were um, some pretty interesting people that came through Camp X, both as uh, trainees and instructors. Yeah. The one guy, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Brooker, he served as a commandant of Camp X. He wasn't the first one, but apparently he was the one who had the the largest legacy there. Yeah. And he, he was a, a strict military disciplinarian, but he also was totally cool with unorthodox training methods. Yeah, like breaking into a classroom, uh, shooting guns. Right. And then, well, not him, you know, himself. Maybe he did. Maybe he played along. Right. But sending dudes in there with guns to, to shoot bullets, live rounds, and then dash out and then come back in and say, all right, well, describe all of these guys. What they look like? What were they wearing? What right. do they smell like? Yeah, not just survive, but now you need to learn how to keep your head during a shootout. Yeah. And then they, he would leave and they would get back to learning how to kick a man in the testicles. <laughs> well, speaking of such, Major Dan Fairbairn. Uh, <laughs> Jerry thought that was funny. He did, actually. <laughs> Um, it's because Jerry didn't have testicles. <laughs> Nothing funny about it. No, I got, can't kick her in the testicles. Man, I got racked the other day for the first time in. Oh man, I don't know, thirty years. It's the worst feeling. There's nothing else like it either. I know. I was trying to tell Emily. I was like, it's such a specific pain that you can't describe it. It's uh, it's indescribable. <laughs> it, well, yeah, it's definitely a unique thing that you just you have to experience it yourself. Yeah. Oh, but luckily for her, that'll never happen. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you. That's okay. You can blame my daughter. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask. Yeah, him. that's how it happens. <laughs> so, uh, Fairbairn was, um, he was a policeman in Shanghai, which that probably means in the 1940s, you're a tough dude, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and he was in charge not too long, uh, at Camp X of close combat training, but apparently he kind of set the standard for, um, brutality in battle because his his uh I guess what do you want to call it his credo or whatever was this sure. nothing is out of bounds kick a guy in the testicles throw a chair at him uh hot coffee in his face um whatever you have to do to disable and kill this guy as quickly as possible is right. what you should do and and quietly if you can like maybe throwing a chair was not your first step yeah, like, don't kill him with a tambourine right, right, <laughs> if, no. you, if you can. Right. And apparently this guy's thing was, again, kick him in the testicles. And then you go for, like, an orifice, right? You jam your fingers in their ears or their eyes or something like that or up their nose to just further distract them on top of the pain of being kicked in the testicles. And then you, you just had them where you wanted them, which was by the throat. Yeah, there was no, uh, he'd never heard of the words fighting dirty. You know, reading this, reading that part about Fairburn, though, in particular, really drove home to me that, like, these guys were, like, like these were, they were killing people. Like, people were dying. They oh, were being sure. trained to kill people. And, you know, with the hindsight of history and it just being 70 years removed from this stuff and the fact that it's just so fascinating. I don't, I don't care. Like you said, you're a huge peacenik. It's still super fascinating to learn about. But 
you realize every once in a while just how removed from reality you are when you're reading about it today. And that, yeah, these guys were being trained to kill and then went on to kill other people. And yeah, it was Nazis. So really, you know, but it, they were still killing human beings. And it really that part drove it home to me. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I think this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so I know what you're talking about, but um they were Nazis. So I don't feel too bad. <laughs> um Another guy was um, Bill Donovan. He was uh, he was a guy who he, he led a lot of efforts to create the espionage organization in the U.S. and help establish Camp X to begin with. And even though he never worked for the CIA, he was one of the the biggest uh, voices, kind of lobbying to establish it. Right. This he worked. He worked for the OSS, yeah. the Office of Strategic Services, which I believe came it grew out of the office of the coordinator of information which was set up to liaise with the british security coordinator right yeah um but once they once the u.s entered the war they set up the office of strategic services and then that became the cia and while bill donovan is just a legend like even though he didn't work for the cia he's he's very much considered the father of the cia yeah he was america's first spook yeah, and you know, a lot of actually, uh, a lot of the graduates, they either went on to further train people or a lot of them did go on to work for the CIA afterward. Yeah. Um, but Gustav, uh, Biele was, I think my favorite dude. Um, I read up on him and he supposedly was the best that they ever had at Camp X. Yeah. He was French Canadian. As as Grabster puts it, he was an exemplary student of sabotage and resistance coordination. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, which means he was a tough guy, right? So yeah, he parachuted behind German lines in France, landed on a rock, and injured his spine. And was like, oh, I just got to walk it off and continued on. I think that was one of the first things that happened to him. Yeah, he would, uh, and this is all always covert, you know, like you said, be behind enemy lines and he would recruit locals and kind of assemble his own little force 10 from Navarone mm-hmm. um, and like, or organize the French resistance and like take these farmers and all of a sudden they're blowing up bridges under his command. Right. Do you remember um, in the DB Cooper episode, Barbara Dayton? Yes. Who was, uh, who was born Robert Dayton uh-huh. during world war two. That's what Robert Dayton was doing. But I think in like Burma. Oh, really? Yeah, he was like parachuting behind enemy lines and finding out who was mad at the the Japanese and assembling guerrilla armies, training them. Huh. This is that's what this dude was doing, but I think he was doing it in Europe, in France. Yeah, well, sadly, he was captured, and um, he was such a tough guy. He never broke. Uh, he was tortured for years, uh, sent to a concentration camp. He never broke, never talked for and, years. Yeah, and the Nazis were so. Uh, I mean, they wanted to keep him alive because they knew he had the information. And finally, the Nazis gave up and executed him, uh, which is very sad into his story. But he unusually was executed by firing squad, which uh, apparently the Nazis didn't really do much. They used piano wire and gas. Um, and apparently the firing squad was a, a sign of their respect for him. Um, oh, really? As a soldier to, wow. you know, to take him out quickly, I guess. So he, um, that was another thing that jarred me too. I was like, oh wow, this guy did that. He blew up railroads. He assembled guerrilla armies and then he was captured and executed. And I was like, oh yeah, 
That really happened too. Well, you had they about a 50 50 shot. I think if you went from Camp X to the theater of war to, to die. Well, yeah, there were, there was apparently, there was one guy I was reading about. I'm not sure if he was trained at Camp X or not, but he was a radar specialist and he was sent behind, uh, German lines, I think in France again as well to basically to try to infiltrate a radar station and check out what radar information the, the Germans had. And the, the special operations guys who went in with him were under orders to kill that guy rather than allow him to be captured. Yeah. They kill their own guy. Man. And supposedly this guy was aware of it and had a cyanide pill and everything. But this is just one guy. Yeah, I guess if you were at Camp X, like when you went on your mission, they told you you're probably not going to come back. Yeah. You want to take a break? Yeah. All right, let's do it. And we'll uh, finish up with a little bit on Hydra Radio and the eventual uh, fate of Camp X. All right, Charles, you ready to round this out? Yeah. Earlier, we kind of teased that uh, there were some women that did play a part in Camp X. And while they were not trained as saboteurs, uh, they were a part of the war effort, uh, specifically uh, these Canadian women who uh, ran, well, at least helped run uh, a radio station housed at Camp X. I wonder if they would be considered sabatuses rather than saboteurs. You know, like a masseur and a masseuse? I I'll know. bet, I'll bet I'm right, man. You know, we had someone write in and tell us masseuse is offensive. Oh, really? Yeah. Massage uh, therapist or nothing. Okay. Sorry, massage therapist. <laughs> we certainly weren't trying to degrade the profession in any way. I should go ahead and apologize to the sabatuses out there as well. <laughs> so, uh, as we mentioned, there was a radio station, Hydra Radio. Um, and communications were gathering intelligence, sending intelligence was a big, big part of the war, mm-hmm. um, uh, for the allies. Well, for both sides, obviously, right. but you couldn't just build a radio station because equipment was scarce. Uh, everything was scarce during the war. So they kind of cobbled together, uh, from private companies and citizens themselves, uh, a, a radio station. Right. So, and apparently some of the Canadians that they, they requisitioned parts to create this radio station, which was codenamed Hydra because of all the antenna that came out the top of it. They, they nicknamed it Hydra and I guess that became its codename. Um, it was a serious state of the art radio station that they put together. Um, but they actually had the people whose radio equipment they requisitioned come yeah. work. At Camp X, at the at the Project Hydra radio station. You know there's some hams in there, for sure. For sure. You know? They kept it clean. <laughs> they did. Uh, but this is where the women uh, played a part. These Canadian women uh, basically helped operate Hydra, and I think kind of headed it up. And they could not stay there because the barracks weren't equipped uh, for, for men and women to both stay there. So they stayed with local families nearby. They were picked up and dropped off for work each day. And weren't really a part of the rest of the camp, but really provided a valuable service for uh, communications for Camp X during the war. 
Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like um, the Hidden Figures story. Yeah, for sure. You know? Uh, they was... operated the Rockex machine. Yeah, I looked at that. Did you see the picture of that thing? Yeah. It was... <laughs> It was, it basically should have been like Danger Will Robinson. Yeah. It was huge and clunky, but it encoded and decoded automatically transmissions that were coming in and out of the, the hydro radio station. And they weren't, they weren't decoding like captured or intercepted, um, access radio transmissions, but they could take them and bounce them over to Bletchley Park, Bletchley Park. Man, that's tough to say. Is it Bletchley or Bletchley? Bletchley. Park. Um, I got that part right. Yeah. Uh, for decoding. And apparently they would also relay transmissions from Washington, from Roosevelt for, um, Winston Churchill to read. There's a, a unknown secret bedroom at Bletchley Park where Winston Churchill would sleep and he would read transmissions in real time from, oh, wow. from, uh, from Roosevelt. And they were basically strategizing the war. Through this, and they were these transmissions were going through the hydro radio station, so it played a huge, hugely important role in World War II. That's awesome. So the war finished, and actually, before the war was even finished, Camp X closed. It didn't even see through to the end of the war. It closed in April 1944, uh, basically because they, as Ed puts it, their work was done. It kind of satisfied its mission. Um, those people were needed elsewhere, so they closed up shop. Um, they don't know how many people, uh, how many men went through there. Uh, it says, cause it was also secret, you know, and they kind of destroyed a lot of the records. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, it varies from a few hundred to a few thousand, depending on who you're going to ask. Apparently it was kind of in vogue to, um, to lie about sure. having, oh, yeah. having trained there. <laughs> how are you going to disprove that sucker? Yeah. You can't. Uh, the buildings were still there though. Like camp X remained. Um, and over the years, it was used for various things. Uh, it was used in the Cold War. They tried to kind of repurpose it, um, which not a bad idea. No, then actually they used it to interrogate a defector in the Cold War. Apparently, right after World War II, there was a, uh, a cipher clerk, a cryptologist named Igor Guzenko. Nice. Guzenko. I added an extra syllable, I think. Yeah. And he left the Soviet Union and headed to Canada. And he had a lot of info with him. So the Canadians and the Americans both interrogated him at uh, Camp X, the abandoned Camp X building, because it was so secure. Yeah, they went on. Uh, the Canadian military took over Hydra, and they continued to use that during the Cold War. Uh, well, continued through World War II um, as Japan kind of hung in there, and then eventually in the Cold War. But then by 1969, of course, all that advanced uh, equipment was no longer advanced, uh, and so it was decommissioned and sold off. Yeah, kind of a igno- ig- uh, ignoble yeah. end to this thing that had played such a huge role. Did you say that they bulldozed it? Well, no, that was just uh, the Hydra station. In the end, they bulldozed what was left of the buildings because they uh, rightly said, you know, there might be some unexploded munitions there. Right. Uh, and that's dangerous. So let's just bulldoze it into Lake Ontario. Right. Cause it's the 1970s. Can't you see some dude in a hard hat just walking away, like dusting off his hands, like job well done. Yeah. Can't see, can't see it anymore. <laughs> so it's fine. There's a uh, saying in the construction business, uh, can't see it for my house. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like if you mess something up, 
Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. Can't I've see it from my house. That. <laughs> that is so construction guy. Isn't it? Yeah. They also have another saying, which is, uh, I'm not going to show up when I say I'm going to, and I'm going to charge way more than I said I would. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a little clumsy, but so, accurate. <laughs> can you imagine, though? I mean, this stuff, I guess, in theory, is still sitting at the bottom of Lake Ontario somewhere. Yeah. It'd be kind of neat to go explore that. I'm really surprised no one has, you know? I, I bet you someone has. Yeah, maybe. Uh, there's a park there now. There's a plaque that commemorates. It's called Intrepid Park. So William Stevenson, the guy who probably inspired James Bond, apparently after the war, he got into ham radio himself, and he, he used uh, this self-proclaimed uh, code name Intrepid. So it's called Intrepid Park after him. And um, there's a plaque. It says some crazy stuff went on here. It's basically like the boulder they show at the end of Red Dawn. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's Except it. this is in Canada, and Red Dawn was apparently in Michigan, or not Michigan, it was in Colorado. Oh, was. I always thought it was Michigan because of the Wolverines thing. Oh, I think I always thought it was like Oregon or something. <clears throat> no, I'm pretty sure it was Colorado. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there you have it. They got Jed's dad's car. <laughs> oh, wait, it wasn't Jed. Who was the other? Who's the guy who, who betrayed them all? Oh, that Darryl. dude. Daryl. They're in Daryl's dad's car. Man, I was so mad at Daryl. I know, but didn't you just feel for him, too, at the same time? It's just, I was torn. It was really horrible. Yeah. Well, if you want to know more about Daryl from Red Dawn or Camp X or anything like that, you should type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this the subject line that the author himself called it. Wild inaccuracies in Champagne episode, but I love you anyways. <laughs> uh, dearest Josh and Chuck, hi guys. Uh, love your show and all that stuff. As a champagne professional, though, and former sommelier, you can just imagine my thrill about the Champagne episode. In fact, the house I work for, uh, Renard, was the very first established Champagne house to ever sell the stuff in 1729. Um, yeah, I knew that the Champagne like experts would find some faults. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, though. No, not too bad. No. He even said that we got most of it right. I think this was a she. Oh, was it? I think so. Oh, yeah, was it is. Lacey. So sorry, Lacey. Lacey. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess Lacey could be a guy. It would be a strange name for a guy, though. Maybe so. I know that, Chuck, because I responded to Lacey and said, oh. so you call us out on all this, and you're the brand ambassador for Runart, and you don't offer us free champagne. <laughs> you probably have some coming, right? Yep, we got some coming. Okay. I got us some some champagne coming. Well, you can have it all, buddy. Awesome. Um, so first and foremost, guys, you got a lot of it correct. Uh, Chuck, your accent is pretty good. You basically nailed uh, Reams. Josh, I'm <laughs> so glad you love the bubbly as much as I do. Uh, mm-hmm. That counts for a lot. Chuck, serious disappointment here because you have always been my favorite. Best laugh ever. Guess it's Josh now. It is, it is true, Chuck. You have a pretty great laugh. This is an emotional roller coaster, I gotta tell you. <laughs> uh, the most glaring and hilarious of all mistakes, though, is the whole champagne grapes. By the way, there's seven, not three. Must get crushed by feet. Champagne does not get pressed by feet. Not at all. And actually, she's wrong there. That is not true. Boom. Because I looked it up, and there are still some houses that crush some champagne by feet. That's what I'm saying. I I was spending my time focused on getting free champagne rather than correcting her. But I I remember seeing that, too. It's not like we just made that up. Right. Uh, She said she double-checked with her chef de cave, and he said, That's so ridiculous. Press machine is mandatory. 
I don't know what accent that was. That was not uh, France. It was like Balkan. Uh, below is a link from the official Champagne website for more in- info. Uh, you can also look up Press Cocard on YouTube. Uh, also, essentially, no one riddles by hand these days. Talk about carpal tunnel syndrome. Most houses, large and small, use a gyro palette. Only a few tiny producers hand reel a few cuvées or large formats. Um, finally, I doubt you can find a decent champagne for under 20 or, or sorry, for 20 or under. I'd say it starts at 40. Whatever. Otherwise, it was a pretty darn good and entertaining episode as always. Thanks for spreading mostly accurate information about my favorite subject, XOXO Lacey. Well, thanks for that, Lacey. And we're looking forward to the champagne, aren't we, Chuck? Yeah, that's Lacey Burke. And um, she's in uh, New York. And like you said, is a brand ambassador for Maison Runard. And also heard back, I forgot, I shouted out my buddy Robbie mm-hmm. and his uh, Langevin and Pearson Meyer wines. He was like, did you shout me out? Because I'm getting some orders. Oh, that's awesome. I was like, oh, yeah. I'd love to hear that. And he said we did a pretty good job, too. So for these very specific uh, very complex industries. If, if we get 90% right, I feel like we've done our jobs. Um, I want to say somebody else combined the champagne episode and the food fads episode and wrote in to say, you guys should try champagne jello shots. Ah, now that's yeah. a jello shot I might try. Okay. There, now we've got it. Well, this is going to start you on the champagne train. Great. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, especially if you want to send us free champagne, free wine, something like that. You can tweet to us. We're at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>